So, Father, we thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit. We thank you that your Holy Spirit is alive and working. So, Lord God, this song that we sang, which is rooted out of Moses' request, when he said, show us your glory. God, we want you to do that in our own lives today. So, Father, the primary way in which you reveal yourself is through your word. It's not the only way, but it is the primary way. So, Father God, show yourself glorious through the clear teaching and exhortation of your, of your scriptures. May the seed of your word fall on good ground. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. One thing we've been, uh, we forgot to mention today, there's another equipping center class uh, today. So we, we do hope that, um, you know, we're a multi-ethnic church and um, we don't want to kind of be like the all-star game where people come from different teams to the event, then when the event's over, they go back to their own teams. A lot of multi-ethnic churches can be that way, where you get people from different ethnicities, they show up for the Sunday event, but they're never really sharing lives with people who don't look like, act like, think like, or vote like them. So we, we want to be a truly multi-ethnic church, not a colorblind church. God didn't call us to be colorblind. Nor does he want us to be a church that idolizes ethnicity. So that's, that's the tension. That's the tension, right? Um, so how do I live in such a way that, um, that I, I, I'm grateful to God for how he's made all of me um, without idolizing that? So that's the tension. So that's a class we're doing after service from 12 to 1245. There's also another wonderful class um, that um, Valerie Saunders is leading called Defending the Faith. Um, that's uh, after service as well from 12 to 12.45. But there's another one as well uh, on financial stewardship called Managing Our Finances God's Way. That starts October 15th, so that's next Sunday, and runs through November 12th. And that will run from 12.30 to 2.30 on Sundays. So uh, you can find more information on that uh, on our app. Joshua chapter 6, we are continuing on in our series as we're making our way through the book of Joshua, I want to encourage you uh, to meet me in Joshua chapter 6 as we're going to walk through uh, this text today. Pick me up in verse 1. Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once, thus shall you do for six days. Seven priests, verse 4, shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. When they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. So Joshua the son of Nun called the priests and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant, and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, Go forward, march around the city, and let the armed men pass on before the Ark of the Lord. Verse 11, So he caused the Ark of the Lord to circle the city, going about it once. And they came into the camp and spent the night in the camp. Verse 20. 
So the people shouted, and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout, and the wall fell down flat, so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. Then they devoted all the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys with the edge of the sword. But to the two men who had, gone, who had spied out the land, Joshua said, Go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there the woman and all who belong to her as you swore to her. Verse 26, Joshua laid an oath on them at that time, saying, Cursed before the Lord be the man who rises up and rebuilds this city, Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn shall he lay its foundation, and at the cost of his youngest son shall he set up its gates. By the way, if you've read through the scriptures, you know that actually happened. A man by the name of H-I-E-L rebuilt the city and the fulfillment of the curse he experienced in his own life. So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame was in all the land. I love sports. I'm a big-time sports person. Absolutely love it. Praise God. He blessed me with a wife um, whose um, major in college was broadcast journalism, and she had aspirations of, uh, uh, I think her dream in life was to be a um, broadcaster, um, journalist for ESPN. And then um, she had Quentin Miles and Jaden and the Lord um, had a different thing um, in mind for her. But my wife enjoys uh, sports. We're just a sports household. Love it. Uh, I, I actually like boxing, if this is a safe place. Uh, actually enjoy boxing. Uh, but if you know anything about boxing, boxing is not what it used to be. Uh, the golden age of, of boxing was really back in the 1970s. Uh, in the, the 1980s as well. Um, and, of course, you can't talk about boxing in the golden age of boxing without talking about Muhammad Ali. And you can't talk about Muhammad Ali without talking about the rumble in the jungle. On October 30th, 1974, in Kinshasa, Zaire, at 4 a.m. in the morning, Muhammad Ali stepped into the ring against George Foreman. If you know anything about that fight, you know that uh, Muhammad Ali, believe it or not, was not favored. He was the underdog in that fight. Uh, he was 32 years of age, uh, which in boxing years is a little over the hill. Um, and then you had George Foreman. I think George Foreman is around 26 years of age, this prodigious puncher. Um, and so Ali wasn't favored. And not only was he not favored, uh, a lot of people thought that Ali could get seriously hurt in that fight. So they were fearful for his safety. Uh, they did say that if Ali had any bit of a chance, uh, he would have to use whatever little vestiges of speed he had left, and he would have to use that and, and his quickness uh, to work in his favor. The worst thing they said Ali could do was to get caught up against the ropes, to get backed into a corner. Well, if you know anything about the fight, um, Ali decides to use the most unconventional means to win that fight. He does something called the rope-a-dope. He doesn't use his speed and quickness. Uh, uh, round about round two, he decides to lean way back onto the ropes and invite this prodigious puncher, George Foreman, to just swing away at him. Uh, Angelo Dundee, Ali's trainer, is yelling and screaming at him, what are you doing? Get off the ropes. But that's what he does. Until round eight, George Foreman has nothing left in the tank. He's been swinging the whole time. And Muhammad Ali sees that and knocks him out. 
in the eighth round of that fight. It has been dubbed the Rope-A-Dope. What's memorable about that fight is not so much the fact that Ali won, but it is how he won. Joshua chapter 6 is the biblical version of the Rope-A-Dope. If you're here today and you would say, I'm not a person of faith, um, don't necessarily know the scriptures well, wouldn't call myself a Christian. There's a handful of Bible stories that I think uh, universally uh, people are aware of. This is a part of that handful of stories. Here's God. He says to the nation of Israel, we're going to uh, attack Jericho. It's going to be a little bit different. Uh, we're going to do it in very unconventional means. Uh, I want you to march around the city once a day in silence for six days. On the seventh day, I want you to march around it seven times. Uh, at the end of the seventh time, uh, the trumpet is is going to blast, and you're going to let out a long shout, and the walls are going to come tumbling down. The reason why this story is so well known, it's not because Israel won. They won a lot of battles. It's because of how they won. They won in the most unconventional of ways. This is, again, the biblical version of the rope a dope. Now, whenever I teach preaching uh, on, on a graduate level, there's a couple schools I've been teaching preaching at. Uh, one of the things I always say to preachers is you got to be careful. There's all kinds of extremes when it comes to preaching. But you want to be careful because there's a certain kind of preacher who pretty much their sermons go like this. It means, 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 it means. Let's pray. God bless you. And you're like, what? Like, what in the world do I do with that ancient text written 2,000 years ago to how I live in 2017? Every message needs what I call a good pair of shoe leather. The sermon is not supposed to be an information dump where I fill your head with knowledge. Now, that's good. In fact, there's another extreme where it's all shoe leather, but there's no real rootedness in the Scripture, and now you have an anemic body of believers who are dying of spiritual malnutrition. It's another sermon for another time. So if, if you're visiting here or if God ever leaves you, uh, causes, causes you to go somewhere else, here's a litmus test for a good church to join. If you can walk into that church and you ain't got to open up your Bible and you don't take not nary a note, that ain't the church for you. You need to learn something, but you need to be both informed and inspired. Now, the challenge of, of our text today is how do I take this, this ancient story and connect it to how we live today? There's a couple things I need you to see. One thing on a, very, on a very superficial but very real level is one of the things that this text points out to us is, is that to be a part of the family of God, to be a part of the covenant people of God, uh, does not give you a pass out of battles. In fact, we've been talking about it all throughout this series. When you got saved, God did not take you from the battlefield. He left you on the battlefield. In fact, if you want to read more about that, read Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, where he says, we wrestle not against flesh and blood. So to be a Christian does not eliminate us from fights, but, but what gives us an advantage over everyone else in life who is embroiled in battles is who fights with us and for us. That is, to be a Christian means we're not on the battlefield by ourselves. We have a very real God who is working behind the scenes, ensuring our victory. In fact, the truth of the matter is, to be in Christ doesn't mean, and I love how Chip Ingram says it, it doesn't mean that we fight for victory, but we fight from victory. 
our victory was already secured on the cross. So, so to be a Christian means that we are in battles. And yet, what this passage points to is a little, and I say this a little bit tongue-in-cheek, is if you ever read through the scriptures, one of the things you pick up on God is God has a profound sense of humor. In fact, it, it's, a, it's a little bit sadistic at times. Here is big God taking on his enemies, and it's, that's no fight. If God goes directly against the enemy, that's not even a fight. So what God loves to do is to take lesser entities than Satan and the fallen angels. Psalm chapter 8 says, uh, speaking of man, you have created him a little bit lower than the heavenly beings. So God loves to take lesser entities known as humans, work through them to bring down the demonic. That's how God loves to work. But not only that, God loves to use lesser human beings using silly, unconventional means to take down greater beings called angels or fallen angels, I should say. It's one of the great themes of Scripture. God always with a sense of humor. I can just see him turn to the Holy Spirit and go, Holy Spirit, watch this. See David? David's going to run out there against Goliath. He ain't even going to have armor on. Five smooth stones. And he's only going to use one. I think God laughs at that. Or look at mighty Naaman. He's got leprosy. Elijah could just say the word. He'd be healed of it. But he's going to dip not once, not twice, but seven times in the muddy, murky Jordan River. Or, 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 or watch this, Holy Spirit. My people, Israel, are out on the battlefield, and, and the way they're going to win is I want Aaron and her to hold up Moses' arms. And as long as those arms are held up, that's how they win. If you understand anything about Scripture, God has a profound sense of humor. He loves using the rope-a-dope. He loves using seemingly silly and unconventional means to pull off huge victories. In fact, the silliest of means he has ever used is the cross of Jesus Christ. If you want an example of God using what the world would consider to be foolishness, to accomplish victory, look no further than the cross. In fact, I want you to write down 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. Spend some time this week maybe just sitting in this text. Listen to it, but listen to it through the lens of God using foolish means to pull off incredible victories. Paul writes, for the word of the cross, listen, is folly. That's foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs. Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ. I can just picture Paul laughing as he's saying this. We preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews. Folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks. You know what he's saying here? If you don't know Christ and you haven't been called, you're going to laugh at that. You, you, you're going to demean that. 
But if you've been adopted in the family of God, you're going to go, no better way. But to those who are being called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, here it is. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men. This is an ironic statement. You know what he's saying here? On God's dumbest day, he's smarter than you. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. Now, I want you to listen to me very, very carefully here, Abundant Life. What is this story about God going, I'm going to use this crazy method, silliness, marching around in silence. Once a day, go home. Tuesday, come back out, march around, go home. Saturday, seven times, shout, comes down. What does this have to do with how I live? Why does God do that? Ultimately, I'm going to touch on it now. I'll unpack it later. God wants us at times to do silly things so that it's so silly that it points to his glory. That's why God, at times, wants you to do silly things. Now, here's the tension. Yes, God wants us to use wisdom. That's why the book of Proverbs is here. That's why the book of Ecclesiastes is here. We, we use wisdom. But also, when we talk about in our Will of God series, there are times God, Jesus says, my sheep know my voice, which we also believe God speaks to us primarily through scriptures. But there are times when the Holy Spirit speaks, and sometimes when he speaks, he will ask us to do what in the natural seems silly. So Christianity is not for control freaks. You with me on this? Let me give you a couple examples of this, uh, of God using si silly things, practical ways. A couple months ago, I shared it with you, one of my good friends, he's a pastor in Arizona, name is Tyler. Tyler um, uh, grew up in a non-Christian home. His father was a big-time high school baseball coach in the Denver, Colorado area. Um, Tyler says, one, one day, we're sitting there, it's like fall of the year, watching the Broncos, love the Broncos, Denver Broncos play. My dad's down in beers, down in beers, down in beers. All of a sudden, um, uh, the kicker's about to kick a field goal, and we see a guy in a clown suit holding up a Romans 10, 9, and 10 sign. Uh, my dad thought he was drunk. I don't know what in the world, but he says, get me a Bible. We rummage through the house, find the Bible, turn to Romans 10, 9, and 10 on the spot. My dad reads it and becomes a follower of Jesus Christ, he says, now, it's been decades later, and his life has been drastically changed from watching a guy in a clown suit hold up a scripture that says Romans 10, 9, and 10. Now, watch it. Here's, what I, here's how I want to look at that story. I didn't look at it th this way last time, but here's how I want to look at it this time. Now, if you're the guy in the clown suit, hopefully you go into the game in a clown suit holding up a scripture because the Holy Spirit told you. Any other way, something's wrong with you. Do you know how silly that looks? But when you hear that story, who are you in awe of? Not the guy in the clown suit. You are in awe of God who uses silly means. Just Friday, I had to preach in Santa Barbara. Had to preach in Santa Barbara. And I'm sitting there at Westmont College, about to get in front of 1,000 people, sitting there in the front row. 30 seconds before I get to preach, Holy Spirit says, I know you planned on preaching something else, but I am calling you to preach something different. And it was such a profound impression on me. I was a little frustrated. I was like, now, Holy Spirit, if you knew that, 
Why couldn't you told me like yesterday? <laughs> it was such a profound impression. Now, here's what I'm feeling at that moment. I'm feeling this tension. This is going to go either really well or really bad. So what am I feeling? I'm feeling like I'm walking a tightrope for about 30 minutes in front of 1,000 people where I could look very foolish. I'm telling you, that's happened many times in my ministry. And every time I've done it, it's, been an, it's like I'm looking at myself as I'm preaching. It, it, the only thing I can describe is athletes being in the zone. And it's not me. I'm looking at me, and there is this profound sense of the presence of God in front of us, in our midst. Now, watch this. There have been times when I've told God no. Because, God, you don't understand. Like, I, this sermon's going to kill. I mean, I done plan this thing out. I got the Greek and the Hebrew figure. It's going to kill. And it's the most impotent thing ever. Why? When I choose to go the way of my mind and my wisdom, when God at times is calling me to go silly, I devoid the act of the power of God. Could it be the reason why the church of Jesus Christ is so impotent today? is because we are into brand management. We are our own PR CEOs. We are so controlled that we have controlled the Spirit of God out of our services, out of our lives, out of our jobs. We, we refuse to look silly at times for the glory of God. If you call yourself a follower of Jesus and you have never done anything silly, you ain't following closely. Now, you got to discern. you got to discern. Because sometimes you'll do something silly, and God's like, I ain't tell you to do that. <laughs> so don't, 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 don't rush out of here and put on a clown suit and go to a 49ers game. That's not the punchline. Make sure he told you. All right? But come on now. You know. And I'm talking to you seasoned saints who've been walking with you. You know God's been speaking to you on some things. In fact, some of you are like, I, I can't discern the voice of God. Here's why. Because when he has spoken to you in the past, you've ignored him. And the Holy Spirit is a perfect gentleman. He ain't going to force himself on you. So you tell him no enough, that's it. So I want to create an environment of structured spontaneity Here's the phrase. I want this church to have theology that cannot be dismissed and Holy Spirit power that cannot be denied. So even when I work with Cormac and putting the service together, let's write, let's plan, but we plan in pencil. And I long for the day when I walk in here and the Holy Spirit says, don't even preach today. There's a verse in the Bible. They were dedicating the temple. The glory of the Lord so hovered over that place. The priest could not even stand to minister. That's the kind of freedom I want here. <laughs> Wait a minute, Pastor. You turn us into Pente Pentecostals? Peel the labels off. I want, to, I want to, Whatever they had in Acts, that's what I want. So God, deliver us from being control freaks. We make room for the Spirit of God 
who at times will call us to look silly, just like Israel looks silly marching around the walls of Jericho. But our silliness is not a dead-end street. Our silliness is a boulevard that points people to the glory of God. That's what we want. That's what we want. Now, two questions of this text, and then, then we'll, we'll, we'll dismiss. This text teaches us a lot about battles. What do these battles look like? Final question, this text teaches us a little bit about the glory of God. What does that mean? How is that practical for my own life? This text teaches us something about battles. I want you to look at how our text begins in verses 1 and 2 of Joshua chapter 6. It says, Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out, none came in. And the Lord said to Jesus, See, watch it now, I love this, I have given Jericho, don't miss this, into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. Listen to what he's saying. It's yours. But you're going to have to show up in March. You missed that. God is saying it is yours, but you ain't going to be in a comatose state. There is a part that you play, and if you want to claim what I have for you, you are going to have to show up and in faith and obedience get to it the way I'm telling you to get to it. March around once a day for six days, seven times on the seventh day. In other words, this is very important. It is an important principle of the spiritual life. And that is our battles and to lay claim for what God has for us in our character, in our holiness, in our friendships, in our careers, at school, in our marriages, with our kids, whatever it may be. To lay claim on it, we have to show up. It's a partnership. Philippians 2, 12 to 13, write it down, says this, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, my part. But it doesn't stop there, for it is God who is at work in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure, God's part. You see the partnership here. You do what you're supposed to do, and if you show up, here's what you'll see. I've already been working behind the scenes to get to you what you're supposed to already have. It's like the man who went to the bank uh, one day, and he stood in line, finally got to the teller, gave the teller a check, and he says, yes, I I need to access those resources. I need to have this check cashed. The teller says to him, I'm sorry, sir, I can't do that. The man's frustrated. He says, well, why can't you do that? That check's got my name on it. teller turned it over and says, yes, it's got your name on it, but you have not endorsed it. Until you endorse this check that has resources waiting on you, you can't access them. God is saying there's things I've got for you, but you're not going to experience them unless you endorse it by showing up by faith. Now, this may sound a little name it and claim it to you, but it's biblical. Biblical. Jesus says, as he's winding down the Sermon on the Mount, listen to what he says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened. Watch the implication. The implication is if you don't ask, it won't be given. If you don't seek, you won't find. And if you won't knock, the door won't be open. See the partnership? Jesus is waiting on us to endorse the check. I believe you've heard me say this before. 
that it is not far-fetched for us to die, stand in the presence of God. God audits our lives. Praise God. If you're a believer, we're not judged. Our works are judged. But then maybe God gets done with that. There's no passage that points to this, but it will be totally within theological parameters for God to say, okay, we've already had that conversation. Come with me. I want to show you a room. Opens up the door. There's all this stuff with our name on it, character stuff, integrity stuff, stuff for our marriages, stuff for our kids, all this stuff waiting on us. And you're like, God, what is that? God says, this is all the stuff I had waiting on you, but you never asked. See, I want you to get this word today. What if your marriage and the depth of it and the success of it was based on your prayer life? See, we're waiting on God to just show up, comatose, godly marriage. What if God says, your kids will only go so far in life based on your prayer life? Now, this isn't a magic recipe. I know a lot of prayerful parents. But what if? What if God says the success of your career is based on your commitment to seek me? What if God says, man, if y'all could see into the supernatural realm, I've got the Holy Spirit waiting to unleash him to pour out revival in the bay that is marked by mass conversions. I'm just waiting on the churches to get together and fast and pray. You know, there's a story in the Bible, I believe it's Hezekiah. It could be Uzziah or Hezekiah. Hezekiah gets sick. And, and the prophet says, you're going to die. It's the word of the Lord. You're going to die. The Bible says, Hezekiah fasted and prayed. And God saw his fasting and praying and healed him. You know, some of y'all would have been dead. Well, the Lord said it. Settles it. What does this story point to? You got to endorse the check. We got to be a people who shows up. Listen to me. When I'm sick, I don't want a conservative evangelical praying for me. I don't need no theologically safe prayers. You, you ever listen to a spirit-filled person pray? It almost sounds like they are being disrespectful to God. I need that kind of person claiming promises. God, in the name of Jesus, you said. Because these are people who are just silly enough to believe that if we show up and by faith do what God tells us to do, he's got a whole bunch of stuff in store for us. So we must work. God says, Jericho, it is for you. You got to show up. That same God says to us, secondly, we must wait. We must wait. Look at verse 11. He says in verse 11 these words. 
So he caused the ark of the Lord to circle the city, going about it once, and they came into the camp and spent the night in the camp. Now, now watch this. The camp here is Gilgal. Get the picture. Once a day for six days, so it's, let's say, Monday, march around the walls in silence. You know how foolish that looks? March around the walls in silence. One time, go home to Gilgal. Next day, Tuesday, wake up in the morning, march around the wall again in silence. Next day, Wednesday, same thing. Next day, Thursday. You know how foolish that looks? And each day you're going home, nothing's happened. You're waiting. Charles Spurgeon actually says it this way in the sermon he preached on this text. He says, it is not far-fetched to believe that on Wednesday and Thursday, the people of Jericho get emboldened and start jeering and cursing and ridiculing and making fun of. So what's happening to them as they're waiting? Their faith is being tested. Their obedience to God is being tested. All they have to hang on is, God, you said, waiting on that in the future. It hasn't happened yet. But while I wait, I'm going to keep showing up. And I'm going to keep showing up. And I'm going to keep showing up. Waiting is hard. And I meet so many people who couldn't wait, who give up on God, which means this. If you can't wait and you give up on God, then that reveals that you were never really after God in the first place. That your God was what you were waiting on him for. And when you didn't get it, you gave up on God. Now, I know. Listen to me. This is, this is the most difficult part about battles, waiting. I hate waiting. My wife will tell you. Whenever I order something online, I always get the tracking number. <laughs> tracking numbers are beautiful, aren't they? Well, a tracking number lets you know it's going to come on such and such a day, get here in this window of time. In fact, I, can, I, I love to even know where's this bad boy coming from. It's coming from New York. Right now it's in Minneapolis. Now it's coming. I, I love that. Just like, Wouldn't it be great if the promises of God had a tracking number to it? June 30th, you're getting healed of cancer. April 1st, that kid's going to, April 2nd, that's April Fool's Day. April uh, 2nd, that kid's coming home. Uh, He's going to have a right relationship with God. September 30th, you're going to get the promotion. Wouldn't it be great, but the problem is God doesn't give us tracking numbers. And so we got to keep showing up to Jericho and keep marching by faith, even when it looks foolish. Still praying, still praying, still praying. George Mueller, his, the autobiography of George Mueller, he had three non-Christian friends in his life that these guys, it, it just, you, you read about them, you're going, man, I just, I don't see that happening. He prayed for them every single day by faith. One of them he saw come to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. The other two came to Christ at his funeral. That's showing up to Jericho. I'm going to keep showing up and keep showing up and keep showing up and keep showing up. Third, we work, we wait. Let, let, me, let me just say this about waiting. It's hard to show up, right? Angela Duckworth gets to this. She calls this idea of 
of showing up when you haven't had the promise fulfilled, this whole idea of grit. She's not a, to my knowledge, she's not a believer, but, but listen to what she says. To be gritty is to keep putting one foot in front of the other. To be gritty is to hold fast to an interesting and purposeful goal. To be gritty is to invest day after week after year in challenging practice. To be gritty is to fall down seven times and rise eight. That's what it really means to be a follower of Jesus. We wait and we wait and we wait, but we keep showing up and keep walking and keep claiming the promises of God. That is spiritual grit. Thirdly, finally, we win. We win. We work. We wait. We win. Verse 20. So the people shouted and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout and the wall fell down flat. So stop right here. Archaeologists have actually excavated Jericho. And in and, 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 and the excavations of Jericho, what it's revealed is all the items there are completely shattered. They all say that what brought Jericho down was an earthquake. I'm in California. I got to stop saying that word. Thank you. Now, this points to the veracity of Scripture. If you're here today, you don't know Christ as Lord and Savior. You're trusting the veracity and reliability of Scripture. This actually points to it. Who's to say that when the people shouted, those walls came, came crashing down, that what caused it was for God to speak, an earthquake happened, and that brought down the walls, and the people go straight in. This is an astounding text. Every man went straight before him, and they captured the city. Then they devoted all the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys, with the edge of the sword. Verse 26, Joshua laid an oath on them at that time, saying, Cursed before the Lord be the man who rises up and rebuilds this city, Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn shall he lay its foundation. At the cost of his youngest son shall he set up its gates. They win. So here they go, they rush in, having done this silly method, and they win. Now, why did they use this silly method? Answer, we've touched on before, God is a glory hound. He is obsessed not just with winning battles, but with winning battles in such a way that his glory stands as a testimony. That's why he says, don't rebuild the city. Why? Because when people walk by and they go, what happened? You have an opportunity to point to my glory. It's like, it's like an underdog team beating another team and them not resetting the scoreboard. It is as if God is saying, no, keep the score on the scoreboard. We won. It's all about my glory. Now, what is the glory of God? We need to know this. Because Paul says it this way to the Colossians and the Corinthians. He says to them, whatever you do in word or deed, do all to the glory of God. We were created to bring God glory. This is what it means to be in the imago Dei, the image of God. All of us here, we were created to bring God glory. That, that's, that's if you're saved, that's even if you're not saved. We were created not just to earn money, not to be successful, not just to start the startup, not to accrue letters behind our name. We were created ultimately for the glory of God. That's why the Westminster Shorter Catechism would say it this way. Question, what is the chief end of man? Answer, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. 
John Piper years ago wrote a wonderful book called Desiring God. He takes this Westminster Shorter Catechism and changes one word and makes it into this concept he calls Christian hedonism. He says, question, what is the chief end of man? Answer to glorify God by enjoying him forever. John Piper would say it this way, that Christ is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. Christ is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. That's a word for Christians in the bay. Your ultimate satisfaction isn't your position. It's not in the success of that business. It's not in where you live. It's not in the fact that you bought a house for 90000 and can sell it for $4 million now. That's not your ultimate satisfaction. Ultimate satisfaction is being God. Now, here's the question. What does it mean to glorify God? Someone once says to glorify God means, means to make him bigger. I get the sentiment there. That's not the idea. The idea of, the, of to glorify God, if, if I've been called to glorify God, the best analogy I can give you is that of a telescope. What does a telescope do? A telescope takes far-off objects like galaxies and constellations and stars and planets like Mars and brings them into such full, clear view that when you peer through that telescope, you are in awe, not of the telescope, but in the object that has come into clear, magnificent view. Our lives are telescopes. We exist through our labors, whether we eat or drink or whatever we do. We exist to bring the far-off God into clear view through how I friend, how I work, how I parent, how I steward money, so that people around us are not in awe of us, but are in awe of the God that they're seeing come clearly into view. That's what it means to glorify God. So this is a concept I've been trying to share with my kids from the time they were small. Our kids right now go to Heathen High. We love Heathen High. And I drop them off at Heathen High. And I say, look, your primary role today, have fun, make friends, hang out, enjoy. But remember, you're that telescope. You walk those halls. Bring God into view. So that people are in awe of the God through you. When you show up to work tomorrow, you are that telescope. Whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, bring God into view. Let's go home on this one. If you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, this is a disturbing text. As the band comes, very disturbing text, because this text makes God sound like he's a racist and is into ethnic cleansing. If you read Joshua chapter 6, God says to these Jews, I want you to devote everything to destruction. I mean, if you're an animal lover, you get offended. I, don't just kill them, kill their house pets. Destroy everything. Now, why does he do that? This text doesn't point to a God who's into ethnic cleansing. It points to a God who is into spiritual cleansing. Notice who doesn't get destroyed. Rahab and her family. What's her ethnicity? She's Canaanite. Why doesn't she get destroyed? 
chapter 2, she puts her faith in God. And then her family who's with her have put her faith in her God, and they get saved too. I love this. Where does Rahab live? Jericho 2, I mean, Joshua 2 says she lives in the wall. Joshua 6, what gets destroyed? The walls. Where is she when she gets saved? In her house, which is in the wall, which means while everything else was crashing down around her, she was preserved. Boy, if I was in a chocolate church, we'd have a little shout right there. God is able to keep you when everything else around you is crashing and crumbling. And I want you to hear me because this is the gospel. And I wouldn't love you if I didn't tell you this. Our text actually is a picture of what's going to happen in the last days. What's going to happen in the last days? Jesus Christ is going to return. This bad boy is going to be severely destroyed. But the only ones who are going to make it are those who, like Rahab, have placed their faith not in real estate, not in money, not in their jobs, not in their knowledge, but in Jesus Christ and him crucified. In fact, I love this. The way she gets saved is she hangs out a scarlet cord, which is a picture of the blood of Jesus Christ. That's what saves us. And I love this. This is a little crass, but it's what it says in the Bible. Joshua says, when you go in, save the prostitute. I love it. So that the gospel does not ignore our sin. The gospel sees our sin and yet saves us out of that sin. That is the gospel. So I'm here today. Do you, do you know this Jesus? Where is your faith? Are you trusting him? Are you seeking him? Are you serving him? Where is your faith? Every head bowed, every eye closed. I, 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 I don't want to take too long. We're running out of time here. In fact, we're out of time. Two calls today. If you're here today, and maybe you're like the people of Jericho, you're just enjoying life on your own terms, hear this word, God is marching around the city of your heart, and you have an opportunity today to say yes to him. Will you say yes to him? But two, I also want to speak to Christians, and and you're just going, man, I... I couldn't tell you the last time I did something silly for God. Oh, that we would be a silly church. Silly not in the eyes of God, but silly in the eyes of the world. That we would be willing to look foolish for the glory of God. So if you want prayer for that, that, that God help me to ease control over my own life. I want you to be in complete control. And I want to be willing to look foolish in the eyes of the world. I, I haven't been willing to look like that but I want a foolish, silly faith. I want to invite you to come. I want to pray over you. 
Father, in the name of Jesus, release your spirit in this house today. You've already done that. But save someone's soul. Help us to be a silly church who believes you in extreme ways that look foolish to the world because we are more concerned about your glory than our image. Do it, Father, we pray in Jesus' name.